Faith is a marriage. Marriage is an act of faith. And Mona is being in a relationship with Shpohu and realizing that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you're not alone because God is with you. Jews have been commanded to endeavor to make themselves aware of their relationship with God and that God is with them. Mona isn't just a simple thing that just it's either a switch on or off. Instead, it's a journey. Those you say that, Tara, are things we're supposed to know, things we're supposed to think about. Even though our task is to notice that, and that's what our tefillahs try and do, and that's what our brachas try and do. That's why they're brachas about seeing changes in the natural world. That's why a birchas hatera, and that's why we are commanded to do acts of love and kindness and giving stock and things like that. You're right. You can't tell somebody you have to have. What you can say is you should put in the right effort to try and make yourself aware of something because that something is so precious and so important that it's essential in terms of being a Jew and it's something which our ancestors have held dear and something we should be proud of through our Jewish heritage. This is Listening to Understand, where sensitive Jewish truth seekers gather in a safe place for candid conversations on challenging topics. When we listen to truly understand and not in order to respond, we can replace judgment with curiosity and open our hearts to every Jew, regardless of their personal choices. As Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I'm Atena. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us here on Listening to Understand. Today I have... Rabbi Johnny Solomon from the South in Israel, the virtual rabbi. I was very grateful he reached out because I highly respect people that think deeper than the scriptures that we receive in yeshiva or seminaries or homes. And from the topics that Rabbi Johnny sent me, I found that there was so many things that I thought about growing up and I never had answered or I never had a place to even speak speak about it. And I'm so grateful that he's willing to share his insight on Amuna, errors in Amuna, living practical Amuna in challenging times. And maybe we can address Amuna from a different perspective and apply it in a correct way. Thank you for joining me here. Thank you so much, Matana. I really appreciate it. So give us a little bit of background, how you got into becoming the virtual rabbi and what your mission is. I grew up in the UK, as you can tell by my accent. My background is education. I taught mostly in high schools. At the same time, when I qualified as a rabbi a little bit later on in life, I was very much invested in trying to help people in the community. I was fortunate to have a teacher, a mentor, Dan Gershon Lopian, as a rabbi for 35 years. In fact, it's his yacht site tomorrow night, his 10th yacht site. And Dan Lopian was a perfect example of a rabbi who knew how to paskin, knew how to give halachic guidance but who's made the time to listen to people to understand that halachic guidance needs to be personalized and who also was sensitive to matters of emunah machshaba. And he inspired me greatly. He helped me greatly. He taught me so much. And when I qualified as a rabbi, I was considering becoming a community rabbi. However, in the end, for various reasons, that didn't happen. And I made Aliyah with my family. I'm married. We've got five daughters aged between 12 and 20. And when I moved to Israel, I said, I wanted to be a Rav, and I decided not to be a, a pulpit rabbi, but how can I do that in a different way? And when I moved originally to Yabinyamin and to where I live now in Evan Shmuel, I thought I'd harness the power of social media to share Torah ideas. And since then, I've done that. This is 12 years ago. Every day, I share ideas on Dafyomi, beautiful ideas I've heard, I've taught, ideas I've come across. And in so doing... Being an emotionally intelligent Torah learner and teacher, different people have heard the ideas I've taught 
appreciated the teachings I've shared and reached out to me. And over time, I came to realize that I was becoming this kind of virtual rabbinic guide to people who didn't have a rabbi. I was blessed to have a community rabbi for, mm. say, 20, 35 years or so. But I realized that many people don't have that person in their life. They don't have somebody who knows them, who takes time to listen to them and their background and their context. And as a result of this, I developed this platform called The Virtual Rabbi, where I'm a rabbi to those without a rabbi, which means that men, women, and couples can book sessions with me through my website, and they tell me what they want to discuss. It could be questions relating to emunah, machshava. It could be questions to do with halacha. I prepare materials which are relating to them. I spend time hearing from them, getting to understand them, and then share some ideas which I think may be useful to them. Unlike the classic model of authority where you go to Rav and they'll tell them what to do, most of these people don't quite fit into that framework. And instead, I emphasize autonomy. Those people have chosen to book a session. They've shared some thing going on in their life. And my task is to share ideas, psakim or insights, rulings or teachings, which will inspire them to enrich their life and make decisions which are informed by Torah teachings. And so I've been what I call the virtual rabbi for now about four years. And I have clients around the world and people book sessions to discuss matters to do with their family life, their work life, their religious life. And through so doing, I've had this privileged opportunity to have an inside window into the lives of men and women of differing levels of religious practice from the least observant to the most observant who appreciate having a confidential go-to person who they may not bump into their local kiddush but who's mm -hmm. taken the time to listen to them and taken the time to not just tell them what to do, but to share with them ideas so that they themselves can make decisions which are right for them and their situation. You're going beyond halacha because you're seeing the whole perspective versus just give me a quick sock. Is this trafe? Should I go? Should I take my birth control? You're saying, I want to hear the story. Firstly, I'm very clear. In fact, I begin every single session with two disclaimers. Number one, I'm not a therapist. And I don't purport to be. And number mm -hmm. two, nobody owes me any answers. I'm not an authority to them. They chose to book that session, and therefore they should share what they're comfortable in sharing. Still, within the halachic framework, we have two terms. One is psak, halachic decision-making. One is etza, giving advice. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, people actually need etza much more than any psak. They don't need, necessarily need me to tell them, this is the law and this is what you should do. That's not how I operate. But certainly, a person's background, their context, their situation matters. It matters in halacha. And as a result of that, psika, the art of halachic decision-making, is itself an art more than a science. And understanding who that person is, and again, this is what I learned from my great teacher, means that you can give them appropriate guidance. So that a person, for example, who is new on their religious journey, they shouldn't be necessarily adopting strictures which may make their life so difficult in that part of their journey that they'll say, I'm not going to proceed any further. Chazal talk about this. They talk about takanata shavim, how we make decrees in order to be welcoming to people who wish to do tshuva or increase their religious practice. And there are also many different other considerations. And my belief is you can't really help somebody unless you know them. And to know them takes time. And so booking time with me and spending an hour, sometimes many hours, talking means that my learning about who this person is, who their family is, where they live, what's going on, means that I can be of better help to them. 
and through talking this through, they themselves get a better understanding of the personal, spiritual, ethical landscape in which they operate. What first comes to mind is probably if people are thinking, but doesn't it say, find yourself a rabbi, that's your rabbi for good. And that's why people say, who's your rabbi? Ask your rabbi. And often people have their one rabbi that they go for everything. And then there's, okay, there's somebody that I'll do for Taras HaMishpacha, some rabbi I'll do for Kashra, some rabbi I'll do for Chinuch. But we have this notion, and I don't know if it's a right notion, you tell me, but you know the saying, don't shop around for the psak, go to your oh. rabbi and whatever they say, follow. And I find that sometimes that's very harsh because what if I don't relate to my rabbi in this specific area that I want to ask and I want to shop around for Allah because I need a kula. I'm looking for a kula or I'm looking for a way to do things differently. What would you say to that? First of all, to Asalech Arav, they're coming to you for one or two or whatever, for you don't become their traditional rabbi. It's more like... Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. What would you answer to somebody that says that? So I think the key word there is lecha. It needs to be for you. That means you have to have confidence the person you're talking to understands you. And the great tragedy is a follow. Mm. And I live in Israel, and I'll talk about both life outside of Israel and inside of Israel. Inside of Israel, 50% of shuls don't have a rav. Of the remaining, 25% have a part-time rav, and only 25% have a full-time rav. That means 75% of shuls don't have somebody that if you call them, you know they're going to get back to you straight away because they're doing many different things. And many Jews in Israel actually are underserved because the notion of a community rabbi actually is quite different. Now, outside of Israel, and I come from the UK and I visit the US and other communities, Rabbonim often are burdened with wishing to basically make their shul into a community center. And they are at a demanding position, and so too with a Rebbetzin. But actually finding the time for a non-urgent, hour-long, or if not longer, conversation about matters of Imuna is incredibly rare. So you can have a rog. You can have somebody that you respect, that you admire. But fundamentally, they haven't got the time and the resources to listen to you enough and to know you enough to help you enough. We assume that if you know the mm. Rob's name, they know you, they know where you live, they may know how many kids you have, they may know what kind of work you do, but they really know you. And again, this isn't a criticism. Many of my close friends are Rabonim, and they themselves would say the great frustration is they often lack the time to do that kind of pastoral slash rabbinic spiritual halachic guidance, which is so necessary. Having somebody that you know when you call, they'll answer. If you message, they'll respond. You know that if you can have a deeper, meaningful conversation, you'll have that. When you go to Yeshiva and Sam, often people will have these deeper, meaningful conversations where they're upon him. Often after the age of 19, 20, you cease having that. At best, you have very shallow conversations in between that are simply saying, how are you doing? You nod your head and that's it. But life is much more complicated. So Selah Harav is contingent on your Rav knowing you and you being prepared to be known by that Rav. And for men and women, it depends, obviously. Again, I was lucky. My community Rav knew me, absolutely. So I know how it should be, but I also know it's often not that way. And let's take a more particular example. If, for example, you're a lady, you're a woman, and you want your Rav to know you, how is that going to operate? Some Rabbonim have appropriate models for that to be achieved. Some don't, and then it becomes an awkward thing of trying to catch them to share a question but you don't want to be stuck there and certainly not on your own, and that'd be inappropriate. And also, they seem to be doing you a favor, and so you don't want to be a burden. And many times, the question you ask isn't really the question that's on your mind. 
the question you ask is a petach, is an opening for a much, much deeper, more complicated question going on in your life. And so it's a process of digging, which takes time and which takes patience, which takes focus. And so the reason I created my service mm. is precisely for that, that people book a session, by the way, they pay a certain amount of money, but they get exclusive time when I prepare. When we're talking, nothing is interrupting us. They can count on somebody listening. They can count on somebody responding. They can count on that person if they message is going to get back to them almost immediately. And that sense of feeling looked after and being understood is what so many people yearn for. And sadly, many people don't have. Now, chas v'shalom, I'd be the first to say, if you have a rav that can do that, go to them. I'm very clear and very insistent. But many times, that's not the case. And instead, people live mm. either in ignorance or they try and look around on the internet or read a book that says something. And these become shallow answers to complicated questions and sometimes makes life much more complicated than it should be. Sometimes, actually, it's not just a wrong that could be a dangerous one. For example, a person may well be, according to Allah, given their situation, it would be also for them to fast on a certain day. But they read in a book and it says, this fast is very severe and we should all fast. And they say, I'm going to do that nonetheless. And then a person can be putting themselves in direct danger because they're not having those kind of consultations. Aseda Harav is precisely what I'm trying to respond to. I think every Jew needs a Rav. I really believe that. And I wish that would be possible that every Rav of every community would serve every member of their community and every Jew went to a shul where there was a Rav. But that's not the case. There are many people who fall between the chairs, as they say in Hebrew, and there are many people who are just moving from one place to another. And there are many people who just feel that that individual doesn't quite get them. So who's there to assist those people? And my response is, I'm not to assist everybody. That would be absurd. But I'm providing a service, and it's very transparent, where it's the client-led process. I'm there to be of service to them. If I, mm. I've got five daughters. When my daughters want to have their nails done, they book an appointment. They say, I want my nails done that way. And whoever is providing that service is a service provider and does so, and they feel great. Rabonus isn't just a shirut. It's not simply a service. But in our modern world, people want to feel in control. This idea that Rabbanut needs to be free, needs to be accessible, and needs to be available in the community. And rabbis have life. Rabbis have other responsibilities. They might even have another job. Then you have multiple. And there's a notion of... I don't want to pay for a rabbi. I don't have to pay. It's a spiritual thing, so why should I pay for it? And it's a wrong way of thinking. Firstly, if you're a member of a community, you are because you're paying a shul fee. So even though, for me, if a person books a session, if you're a member of a community, of course you pay. I pay shul fees for my shul. Of course they would. At the end of the day, there is some kind of transfer to be able to get that time. However, and this is a different thing, and it's almost absurd. If you're in a regular community, and of course there are exceptions, can you guarantee, again, you will have a half an hour, an hour conversation about something on your mind at a time that's convenient to you? And the short answer is no, of course not. In fact, ask the average Jew who goes to shul, let's say, halavai. At best, I get a hello or a few words passing by. And when I ask a shy, I don't want to make it too complicated. I don't want to bother the rav. And it's fast. It's on the go. It's can I grab five minutes? Can I walk you to mincha? So how is that helpful? My point is, our shilas and our issues, our wrestling, which is of halacha and amona, the simple thing is the bread kosher, of course, 
there's no, that's, I answer those questions the whole time for nothing, obviously. But when it comes to the complicated things, which require a knowledge of that person, which requires real investment of time and effort, and then it makes sense. And, and in addition, let's say to the actual time, it's preparation of Torah sources. I often think of myself as a shadchan, not in terms of people matchmaker, but I'm a matchmaker between people and ideas. So imagine you were talking with me and you'll be sharing certain things. And I hear that you have a leaning towards in more Hasidic ideas, leaning to certain more rational ideas, leaning towards whatever, whatever. Then I'd say, maybe this teacher's idea, that teaching the Chobos of Ovos, if she'd learn, that could really be transformative. And so almost matchmaking of ideas between people and Torah. I love that. It's beautiful. And what's amazing, and this happens many times, is I'll share a teaching which I've thought is appropriate for that person, having gotten to know them. And it's as if, a bit like love and first sight, they say, I've been looking for this Torah my whole life. There was a guy who was like, I want something spiritual. I want it still to be intellectual. And I feel undernourished. I'm somebody who learns. I don't know where to turn. And I said, I've talked to him for a while. Why don't we learn Maral? And we start learning Maral's, oh, I've been missing in my life. And we're told you're supposed to learn the Torah that your heart desires. And so we need to hear who that person is. We need to know what their heart is to be able to provide what they desire. I want to add to what you're saying is that I see it often because I'm in the mental health world. And for many years, I've been sharing my story, my challenges recovering from uh, mental health. So I also help people in their recovery and I hear are awful. And often they're very religious or orthodox people. And they'll say, my husband doesn't have a rabbi. Or my husband doesn't have a kesher, a connection with a rabbi that he'll feel comfortable with. So we're stuck because they want to stay within the frame of halacha, but they don't know who to ask. And I want to just say that this is something that comes up so often that they're just stuck because they don't know who to ask. And sometimes it's just about getting that guidance or that clarity or brainstorming with somebody that knows more context than them to get the guidance. So I can't say how much what you're doing is necessary. And I hear this all the time. We don't really have a rabbi. I don't know who to ask. We don't feel comfortable asking our shul rabbi or vice versa, or my rabbi doesn't have time. So many times when kids are with mental health issues or they're going off the derech or with different challenges, major challenges, and they'll say, our rabbi doesn't have time. We can't get in touch with our rabbi. And they're stuck. And it feels very lonely because you want to stay within the framework of Judaism, halacha, and you want guidance, like what's the right way. So kudos to you. And I think it's necessary. And I'm grateful for your work. Hopefully there'll be a lot of more like you. In a way, I also think like, you need a lot of knowledge. You're probably like an encyclopedia, like a Google for Judaism and philosophy and sources. Like it's a hard thing to do because you said, in a way you're like, okay, what do they need? Do they need chassidut? Do they need more hashkafa? What, do they need more halacha? What do they connect to? And I'll meet them where they're at which is so beautiful. You know, I smile because Baruch Hashem, through doing this, I'm able to spend a lot of time learning. I also had great teachers and continue Baruch Hashem to learn with many people. But on Shabbat, I have a friend of mine who on every Shabbos wants me to go to his kid. He's a dear friend and dear neighbor. And I say, listen, on Shabbos, I learn. And he says, but come. I say, and he's a Lubavitcher. I say, listen, you want me to come to learn Lubavitcher stuff? I say, I do. You know I do. Because I said, but I don't just learn about it. I learn Rabbi Nachman. I learn rationalists. I, learn. I said, it takes time. I, I rely on Shabbos to learn. I'm very protective of my learning on Shabbos. I'm a Pesach, my shul. But 
for, for a number of hours, I need to learn to be able to be holding these different sugyas, complicated ones to do with chinuch, to do with different things, because on any given day, I can meet somebody and I need to have a sense of what works for them. And just like a doctor has to maintain a certain knowledge so they can diagnose where a person's at, Rabbanim need to have a broad knowledge yeah. to say, this is what this person, and that may not necessarily be reflective of how I grew up. My job is to learn all different parts of Torah, to know that this Torah is exactly what this person needs. And this ruling, this guidance, this insight, and again, when it works, when it happens, it is pure magic. It just, you see somebody's soul melt and they realize this is what I need because you're strengthening them. You're giving them the chizik, the time when they feel weak. And just, I should just quickly add, I know we've got things to discuss, but the real motivation isn't Stam just teaching. Obviously I'm a teacher and I'm somebody who learns, but it's one of these broader things, such as you mentioned about Sean and Myers, because relationships can be traumatized. Often they can end where there is a dissonance where one person says, this is the way we're doing it. And the other person doesn't have somebody to talk to and talk through these things. And just a couple of days ago, a situation like this arose where through giving appropriate, clear, of course, source-based guidance, and I send follow-up to every single client, meaning it's not Stam, listen to me, it's here are the Makalot, which are related to your thing. Then they're able to go back home and then figure out a way forward and trying to help an individual in their personal relationships with others, marital relationships, with more delicate things sometimes, which they're not necessarily prepared to or wanting to discuss with a person they see regularly, but they too have needs. And hearing them and giving appropriate guidance from obviously respected post-skim, et cetera, means that we can help those in need and oftentimes salvage challenging relationships. Beautiful. So let's tackle Amuna. Let's go down... What is your definition of emuna when somebody comes to you and says, Rabbi Solomon, what is emuna? One of my teachers is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He died a few years ago, as we know. And he, he has a beautiful line. He says, faith is a marriage. Marriage is an act of faith. And Muna is being in a relationship with Shpohu and realizing that no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you're not alone because God is with you. I think understanding that notion of relationship and that notion of presence is core to Obviously, there are certain things we need to know. Otherwise, we can misrepresent emona. There's also certain things we can't know, and we need to have the humility to recognize the ways of Kanshbaru's interaction with the world that we can't fully fathom. But in terms of emona, relationship and presence, that I matter, right? That if I'm in a relationship with the Kanshbaru, it means God matters to me and I matter to God. And no matter wherever I am, whatever I'm going through, I'm not alone. So my first thing that I come to is Amuna is not something that we can command. Amuna is an emotional state. We can't say you must believe, you need to trust. It's something that comes internally. So when a lot of times people say you have to believe, that you have to need, is misplaced, right? The have to believe? I think, firstly, Amun is a very personal thing. Jews have been commanded to endeavor to make themselves aware of their relationship with God and that God is with them. So there is knowledge we need to do. There's work we need to do to try and make ourselves more aware of 
that presence of God and that relationship with God. And so Imona isn't just a simple thing that just, it's either a switch on or off, right? Instead, it's a journey. And it's a journey that we go on, which changes, has ups and downs in life, like every relationship. And it requires certain measure of investment, almost preparation, preparation and understanding the terms of that relationship. This is why Rambam begins his Mishnah Torah with Hilchus Yisaydeh Torah, where he outlines what it means to be a believer. Mm. And those Yisaydeh Torah are things we're supposed to know, or things we're supposed to think about, such as that Akash Bochum manifests himself in the world, in creation, and through Torah, and in through commanding us to make a difference in the world, as Rabbi Sachs describes it, creation, revelation, and redemption. But still, even though our task is to notice that, and that's what our tefillahs try and do, and that's what our brachas try and do. That's why they're brachas about seeing changes in the natural world. That's why birchas haTorah, and that's why we are commanded to do acts of loving kindness and giving stock and things like that. You're right. You can't tell somebody you have to have. What you can say is, you should put in the right effort to try and make yourself aware of something, because that something is so precious and so important that it's essential to be in terms of being a Jew. And it's something which our ancestors have held dear and something we should be proud of through our Jewish heritage. Where is Emunah Minat Torah? If anybody says, like, where's the sources of Emunah? Do we have to believe? Do we have to? Or is there a commandment of Emunah? Arguably there is. The Rambam discusses that in Hilchasi Seder Torah. He discusses it elsewhere too. There's a big discussion amongst the Rishonim. How can that commandment be I gave a whole course, a year-long course, on the Hilchas Yisraeli Torah. And in fact, I want to make a point here, meaning I can gladly send sources to those who wish to know, and anybody's interested, I'm happy to send sources about the command to believe and what it means to be commanded to believe. The issue, though, is, in fact, that most of us don't learn Rambam's Hilchas Yisraeli Torah, but most of us don't actually invest real time in learning about Imuna. We take it for granted that should come naturally. We often blame Jews when it doesn't come naturally. And we often perpetuate certain interpretations of Imuna, which we assume those houses or in our classrooms, if we're teachers, should be adopting. Though I'm happy to share now, perhaps we've got a limited time, in terms of the sources of the, as the command of Imuna and what that exactly looks like. The question is, how many Jews actually have spent real time learning Machshava, learning about the mitzvah of Amuna? If that's the core of what it means to Jew, surely that's what we should be spending real time exploring as Jew. What I've come to realize over the years, which is one of the reasons I taught this course, is that very few Jews actually intentionally go on that learning journey about Amuna. And in fact, we have quite shallow descriptions about Imona, even though Chazal, our sages, have very sophisticated and profound teachings about Imona. In terms of halacha, if you want to learn Hilchah Shabbos, you go to a shir, you read some books, right? You don't presume that you know the things, you go to class to learn. In terms of Imona, actually, there is far fewer settings where we even talk about the building blocks of Imona, and what Kajbohu Hu asks at the center question that Pukhosh asked Moshe in Sefer Dvarim, what do you want from me for that matter? And the problem though is to not deliberately, intentionally explore the world of Machshav and Mona is to automatically lack a sophisticated understanding 
of topics so core to who we are that we're likely to find ourselves in trouble. Just as much as if I don't learn here for Shabbos, there's a Chofetz time, I'm likely to break Shabbos. If I don't learn about Amunah, I'm likely to get confused about my relationship with God. And it's a lot easier to find where Dinim of Hilchah Shabbos are outlined in Shemir Shabbos and all those other books like that. Many Jews wouldn't even know where to start, sadly, because these teachings have been written by our greatest of sages over a thousand years, and again, stemming from things like Sefer Dvarim. And yet, we don't intentionally learn Emunah or go on a journey of learning for Emunah. And that leads to what I often call bumper sticker Emunah, where people throw away simple phrases about complicated problems. I'll give you a couple of examples. People will often say, Judaism says all's for the best, right? You've probably heard that before. So a person's going through a tough time, and somebody would say, Nagamza Lateva. Right. Nagamza Lateva, by the way, is a phrase from the Gemara, but that doesn't necessarily encapsulate an absolute ethic for all situations. It's a Mama Chazal, which has been overstretched, and in so doing, it's confused lots of people. I'll give you an example, because I do these spiritual coaching workshops, where you tell me whether you'd say to this person, Gamza Lateva. Sorry. I want to just ask you, are you saying that it's misused sometimes, that there's a context? of when it's supposed to be used, and sometimes it's just not the appropriate place, or it's not even correct, correct. to use Gamzalatova. Okay. A hundred percent. Okay. Because Gamzalatova is almost a punchline of a series of events that happen in the life of Rabbi Akiva. Firstly, you need to ask yourself, are we all supposed to be Rabbi Akiva? That's a different question. Are we? Not supposed to. Are we? Are we, right? Secondly, though, is that an appropriate response to all bad things. So I'll give you a, a practical, I, I use these scenarios in my workshops. Sarah is 33 years old and has spent much of the past 10 years dating, but notwithstanding her significant efforts and one broken off engagement, she is single, though she desperately wishes to be married. Sarah recently went to a shia on the theme of Emona, where the lecturer emphasized that faith is believing that whatever happens to us is for the best. But especially since Sarah turned 30, and especially when spending time with her friends, most of whom being married with one or two kids, Sarah isn't quite feeling that all is for the best. In fact, Sarah is feeling so despondent and so spiritually disconnected that she recently stopped reciting her daily prayers and has started to question her faith. And I say, when I do these workshops, what do you think about Sarah's response to her situation? Meaning, would you say Gamzula Torah to this white lady? And most people would say, I'd say, so, so you need to know that this is, shall we say, a, a response which is only appropriate to certain settings. Have you ever thought about what those settings are? Most people would say, not really. I'd say, then you have a duty to learn before you share wisdom, which may well be misapplied. I want to question that. So there's a difference between someone telling you what to think versus what you choose to think. Oh, absolutely. So if I'm that person, I could choose to say, Gamzulatova, I don't know why Hashem is doing this. This is for my journey. It's for my growth. Why? And I don't even know if I'll have the privilege of seeing the tova that feels tov. I should say the tov that feels tov in this world, the good that feels good in this world. But I'm choosing to believe because I believe in Hashem and the greater divine that everything is done for the greater good of my neshama, of this mission of me in the world. So that part I could say is true. What you're saying is it's not other people's place to say it. Come to my spiritual coaching workshops. You'd heard me say exactly that, which is when you learn the Gemara, you come to realize one thing. Rabbi Akiva says it to himself. He doesn't say it to mm. other people. 
Since when do we have a tradition that I'm supposed to tell other people, especially during hard times, Gamzula Tova? Sometimes that's foolish. Sometimes it's simply cruel. That's a great example. But it doesn't mean that it's not true. Theologically, it might be true. Well. But we're not supposed to be that teacher for the person because it's supposed to be internally. That's what you're saying. So firstly, let's talk about, so how about, is it true? Does it always work out for the best? Ravaren Lichtenstein has a beautiful essay titled Bitachon, which explores this topic. He quotes a variety of beautiful sources, including the Chazanish. The Chazanish in his Sefer Emunah Bitachon addresses this specific topic. In fact, I'll even quote you the Chazanish. The Chazanish says, an old error has become rooted in the hearts of many concerning the concept of trust. Trust has come to mean that a person is obligated to believe that whenever he or she is presented with two possible outcomes, one good and one not, then certainly it will turn out for the good. And if he had doubts and fears are worse, that constitutes a lack of bitachon. This view of trust is incorrect. The Chazanish says, it doesn't always work out great, right? It feels great. Meaning, not only you shouldn't be giving that pep talk to others oftentimes, by the way, sometimes you should, and that's why you need to know people. But secondly, there's a whole studio of bitachon. And I, I'd advise anybody who wishes to read this fantastic essay by Rolichenstein, who outlines all these incredible sources and really yeah. what he's coming to affirm is a Chazanish's perspective, which is to say, what is bitachon? I'll, I'll summarize the, the punchline of the essay. Bitachon is not, it'll all work out great. Guess what? With Rabbi Akiva, you know how, how it worked out in the end? Worked out mm. that his skin was mm. torn by the Romans. Didn't work out for the best. What is bitachon? Knowing that even when that's happening, Kachmoch is with me. He cries out, Shmai Yisrael says, even in my moment of great anguish, you are with me. What I understood when I was learning the differences, they say, Emunah is in theory, when, like just to believe that God is in control of the world, to have a relationship with God, and everything is for the divine. Bitachon is in the Nisayon. When it's a challenging time to say, I believe that even though this is brutal and it's the most difficult and I don't see the good, it doesn't feel good, and I might never see the feeling of the good in this world, I'm choosing to believe that it's for the greater good of my life of the Hashem designed and Hashem is with me. A hundred percent. And that distinction is crucial. But what you'll remember that in that narrative of the torture of Rabbi Akiva, he doesn't say to himself, let alone others, Gamzulatayva. My point is, again, this is an example of many, that there are teachings which are true that you can say to yourself at the right time, which express profound emunah in a situation of being tested, which therefore is an expression of bitachon. And I think that distinction is helpful. But to misuse some of those terms or say it to somebody else, not only can be insensitive, sometimes it can simply be false. And the problem is that most of us, even if with yeshiva and seminary, the, there is a lack of systematic learning of matters relating to machshav emunah. And as a result of this, certain emunah errors creep in. And to quote Rav Lichtenstein from a different essay, he says, if you're asked to shaila, I have a duty to consult whatever it would be, the Toshul Chanarach with the different Mepharshim, often spending many hours preparing people. Yet when it comes down to matters to do with Jewish thought and Jewish belief, often we simply say what sounds good and what feels good. That's, that implies that matters to do with Emunam Bitachon are simple, and matters to do with Halacha are complicated. Lehefech. Lehefech. Obviously it's Lehefech. Actually, many matters to do with Halacha are simple. Many matters to them are incredibly difficult. We should be spending often a lot more time 
trying to reflect upon and formulate appropriate responses to people rather than trying to give a short, simple answer to a difficult, deep and complex question. Okay, this leads me to my next question. That's that's a little bit deeper analyzer, Muna, and I hope I'm going to get this correct, that people understand my question. And it's personal, and I'm going to share a personal experience that I'm sure a lot of people grapple with. So mm-hmm. I believe, I find that I believe there's a God, and I solely connect to a higher energy, a higher force. And I choose to believe it because life is so much easier and better for me that way. And it's comforting. Mm-hmm. And there's this joy when you live with Hashem. I didn't always have it. It came only after I had my mental breakdown that I had to return to find God within me, a whole different parsha. I do still struggle with a lot of halacha. And I find that a lot of people don't understand my confusion. And they also have a confusion. But if you believe in Hashem, how can you struggle with halacha? Hashem says, the Torah says, so if you believe in Hashem, you believe in the Torah, and you believe in Allah, and you believe in the Shulchan and, Aruch, and, and it's natural. And I want to bridge to find the definition between I can believe that there's a God, and I believe that there's a um, set of rules, but it still can be very hard for me to keep certain things, and it doesn't mean that I don't believe. And maybe even choose not to keep. So explain this. When people say, but don't you believe in God? That's the natural. Don't you believe in God? Don't you believe in onash? Don't you believe in consequence? So if you believe, how do you choose to not follow certain things that in halacha says that you have to? So I want your insight on that. I talked about emona as being a relationship. So I'll just briefly talk. I'm, I've been married now. I need to do the math. About 23 years or something like that. If I were to take that person's logic, if I love my wife, then I'll never be reluctant to do anything she asks me to do, however mundane or annoying it is in the house. Now, I'd love to say I'm a great husband, but sometimes when she asks me to do mundane and annoying things in the house, I find them mundane and annoying, and sometimes I don't do them. Does that mean I'm not a husband? That means I am. But it means that our relationship can be sometimes better or worse, and sometimes a person is prepared to invest more or less. And there's sometimes a meaningful disconnect between the emotions underpinning the relationship and necessarily the ma'aseh, the action, or making sure you do the washing up late at night when you really can't be bothered. The implication that because you love a Baruch then everything in halacha is easy. If you're that kind of person, wonderful. Matur. Not easy. I wouldn't say even easy that I choose to challenge or to say I don't relate to it. Or to even say... I can't fathom this is what the Torah is really saying. This is why I provide these halacha consultation services, because all too often the halacha that you can't fathom isn't the halacha you're being asked to keep. You've never had the opportunity to necessarily understand what that personally demands of you and continuum of options, halachically legitimate options, obviously, which are available in terms of fulfilling that particular mitzvah. So it, it's, it, halacha isn't like a singular shoe of a single size and everybody's got to fit it perfectly. There's a range of shoes which fit different people. As I mentioned before, a person who is new, growing in terms of their Yiddishkeit, there's more halachic flexibility for that person, persons with mental health issues. Certainly there's significant halachic flexibility and understanding for that person. But beyond that, there, there are a variety of opinions some about certain halachic practices. and Sharing where the point of difficulty is, 
with somebody who is hopefully sufficiently qualified in halacha and sufficiently interested in listening um, means almost always, again, not always, almost always you say, okay, you're trying to take this application of halacha from this worldview to you where right now that's a little bit difficult. And so what are options do you have? And then you come up with different options. So if you go to a restaurant and you have certain allergies, right? You'll try and make sure that what you're eating is appropriate and not triggering and not dangerous for you. Halacha is meant for you. And if you feel it's not meant for you, then either they don't know you well enough or quite possibly you don't realize that maybe in this moment in time, you're exempt from that mitzvah. It's also possible, by the way. A person can say, uh, exempts you from that particular mitzvah in this certain situation I mentioned before about fasting. Sometimes a person, you shouldn't be fasting and, and attempting to do so would be wrong, but that applies in many different other ways. In place, we could be discussing all many different particular halachic practices. But when we talk about davening, for example, what does it mean in terms of our duty of tefillah? Duty to tefillah, does that mean that you have to say all these prayers every day? There are different opinions about what an individual has to pray every day. Certainly that depends on their availability, their state of mind. Recognizing that halacha provides almost a menu uh, depending on your situation and being aware of that situation means that you can choose to keep something in almost every situation. And so I'm involved in that art of, like I said, like a shadchan, not just in terms of ideas, but sometimes in, also in terms of psika and helping people keep halacha, which is what I'm interested in. I'm a Pesach of a shul. My rabbi is a Pesach. I'm interested in people keeping halacha. But I know people only keep halacha if they feel they can. And finding ways to do that, that's what a rav is all about. And sadly, too many people don't have that kind of personalized guidance and they feel that it just doesn't fit me. Just think, just to use a quick analogy, if you go to a store and just try and buy clothes off the shelf, right? Sometimes things may fit better than others or me for sure, most of them don't fit, right? If you go to a tailor, then they measure you and they say, I'm going to make something that fits you. Many hours halacha are what you get in a store. It's kashras, it doesn't need to be so personalized. It's either kosher or it's not. But areas of, mat, of halacha which are sensitive to our emotional frame of mind, our different needs, right? Sometimes we need, shall we say, a halachic tailor to, to give us a made-to-measure guidance which is right for that person in, in their current situation. And the act of measuring, sizing up, getting a sense of who this person is I'm talking to and saying, for you, this is what's right in this given situation then you say, wonderful, then I get it. I say, that's something which not just interests me, which I'm involved with on a regular basis. As a result of that, that dissonance doesn't exist. Because if you feel that you've been heard, available, then you'll work something out. Even if you, it's not, then come to realize if none of these work for me, then obviously in this given moment in time, I'm exempt. We're talking theoreticals. But in this given moment in time, either I'm exempt well, I'm not yet ready. You know, Franz Rosenzweig used to say, when they said, you put them to me, he says, not yet. Exactly what I wanted to say, not yet. And sometimes the not yet is not in the mindset. I think there's such a big difference between saying, 
I don't know if I'll ever be ready. I don't resonate with it. It's very hard for me. But I'm choosing emunah in Hashem, to connect to Hashem in other ways. But this is hard for me. I don't know if I'll ever connect to it. And I don't know even if there's a way out of doing it the way, what feels right to me. But I think a lot of times in society, all or nothing, people, children say, if I can't connect to this, so maybe everything is wrong, so I'm out. Yeah, which is what? I mean, we go back to not just Rabonis in general, you know, I'm not the fittest person. And I started with a personal trainer. If I think exercise in a significant way is an all or nothing, well, I'm, sadly, I'm going to choose nothing. But I needed a personal trainer to say, okay, I'm now mm. understanding who you are, what you're able to start with. And what you're able to start with is not what he does. This guy jumps tall buildings, right? But for me, I just needed to do some stretches and a little bit of running. And then you build people up. And just as much as that would work in a gym, it also works in, in, in halacha and in almost every other area of life. And so you need somebody to coach. I call that my, my service spiritual coaching. And recognizing who this person mm -hmm. is, they can say, not yet. I say, fine, not yet. You tell me when you're ready. And that person can say, I'm ready, but I'm, I can only do certain things. Say, fine. Well, this is a halachically preferable way to do those certain things. You know, often around Pesach, people would say, I'm going to do a Seder, but I'm not going to do the whole Seder. It's what I have to say. Well, that's a Shiloh. And we'll give some guidance about what are absolute requirements and what are nice additions to, to let us. Giving people that guidance means they're fulfilling, firstly, derises, the Torah requirements of let us say there, but also they're feeling that they've been involved in this important, which speaks volumes about who we are as a nation, our heritage, and our story. So people need to have faith in others who should be there to listen, support, and give personal guidance. And that's what, you know, that's what religious guidance should be all about. And if a person's not yet, they're not yet. And a little bit, a little bit, and you build people up, you wean people in terms of Jewish practice as much as you do in terms of eating as they're growing up. And if, if anybody, by the way, thinks this sounds strange, look at Moshe Sternbach's Chivas von Hoggers, where he's asked a question about Shiva, they're not sure whether to start keeping Shabbos or Tashrish Bacha or Kashrus. He says, whatever they can start with. Don't try and do everything. Meaning, part of the classic approach is to recognize that people are on a journey, and other than somebody who's converted who has to then commit to keeping the whole Torah at once, you don't need to do that. You need to commit to a process and a program which helps you growing. And as long as your grammar belongs and explains, it's only going up in that ladder, then all the better. What are the some errors that are taught younger children in traditional private Jewish education schools that you wish would change from younger on, that we don't have to do the correction when we're newly married, starting off life, or maybe with children that they're grappling with Amuna and we're like checking in on our Amuna and it's very uncomfortable because we never did this really analytic thought. So what can we, what fundamentals can we strive for early on that you think is maybe missing in education in the Jewish world? When well, we come so, well, again, we're using some certain words, a little bit interchangeably, that's Beseda. I'll mention all of a reason in practical conversation. Hashkacha Pratis. Hashkacha Pratis is a phrase we often use. It's actually a phrase that very few people understand. They don't realize that there's serious disagreement about what we mean by Hashkacha Pratis. And I wish that before, I, I think it's important to tell stories 
and inspire young people and inspire old people. I love stories. But I wish at some point we say, let's take God seriously enough to try and make sense of Hashkacha Pratis. That's number one. It's a huge conversation to say, what does that mean? There are various farm who do a good jo job. Sorry, there's various farm who do a poor job. Still, too often we assume that every single thing in life has been micro managed by Kodesh apart from the bad, uh, which then means, well, either it is or it isn't. We basically make these blanket statements about how Kodesh operates the world, and then we change the rules when it doesn't quite fit. Actually, we need to be much more thoughtful at the beginning. I know that's a whole topic. I'll just mention three others. Yeah, that's really like, so wait, so once again, so so is there an uh, an idea of like we think that everything is for the is created for me in my journey and properly programmed for me in my journey isn't that ashkacha prati like so personal divine, divine? I think what you just described isn't what we often refer to ashkacha prati ashkacha prati you know often will, people will tell a story about you finding a parking spot and say ah ashkacha prati is it I could have spoke uh, one second is it is it not every single parking spot <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, it's being choreographed by Kodesh Baruch In simple terms, it's a machoikas rishonim as to whether we're hashgacha protest, minimalist. I'm not going to, me to say there is a singular definition is foolish. It's just not true. Just much as there isn't a singular definition of bitachon. I quote the Chazanish. By the way, people disagree with the Chazanish. But people should not know that there's variation on right. the topic. Okay. Too often, we assume okay. it means one singular thing. I'm okay. saying it's not. There's big debates about this. And so maybe if we realize a big debate, we'll be a little bit slower to make absolute statements because we align with one approach and we're often even ignorant of all the other approaches. Too often, we make statements about how Kodesh interacts in the world without necessarily knowing 100% whether that's the case. Now, sometimes that's very... Right, we're learning about it. We're learning about it. It's like warming. Just... It's heartwarming. I'm, I'm a man. I love it. I'm on it to me. Uh, to me, on that really simple, simple, simplistic faith. But I recognize we have to learn before we speak about things that we claim to know about. I wouldn't dare to talk, give a lecture about a topic that I haven't researched. I wouldn't dare write an article about a topic without doing some background. Too often, Torah teachers speak about Emona Machshava without even knowing that there are deb major debates about these massive issues. And in so doing, I gave you that scenario about Sarah. I'll give you a scenario about Ashkacha Pratis, right? It's just simple. Again, I come up with these scenarios because with scenarios, you really get to the Nukudah very, very clearly. During her speech at her Sudat Hoda, Frieda explained to all those present how she knew that she'd survived the horrific car accident because of Ashkacha Pratis, because God had looked out for her. All those present were naturally delighted to share this special event. Yet while Frida was speaking, Miri couldn't hold herself back from thinking about her father, a Holocaust survivor, who had since dedicated his life to teaching Torah, who was killed in a road traffic accident just last year. If Frida was saved because of Ashkacha Pratis, why mm. wasn't Miri's father? I'm well aware that's to absurdly mm. overplay the topic. Mm. But when we say, Ashkacha, has God looked out for me? I say, well, why didn't he look out for that person? I have a very hard time with the war in Israel. People are highlighting all of the miracles that are happening. And what about all the soldiers that died or lost limbs? But, so Hashem didn't look out for them. So then it's, oh, but it's for the good. 
So it's not, as you say, it's not so straightforward. So which one is it? Oh. It, maybe it's both. Maybe it's both, but it's too simplified to use. Well, That's you know, what I think you're saying, right? This is a topic right? I also give a, a coaching workshop about miracles. And I, I listen to the news story. If a person says a miracle happened to me, I say, good that you think that. I'm thrilled. In terms of that individual, if that word works, I'm great. But then once we announce it, we make statements. We're making a theological statement. Ness, by the way, is a very big word. You may, may think it's small in terms of Hebrew. But in terms of its theological, mm. theological implication, it's giant. We often presume Akash Baruch works on two gears, derachateva, natural, or ness, miracle. And very well, if it wasn't natural, it must be a ness. If you learn the Chavitz Chaim, again, I, I learned with my Shtabach, I learned with Chavitz Chaim, I learned the Chazanish, right? These are people who I'm learning from, whose Torah I'm teaching. Learn the Chavitz Chaim, he teaches that there are three modes of in terms of these kind of things. One is natural. One is nest, right? And he gives, by the way, definitions about what is nest, and the Rambam does too, which you'll generally find mm. what most people mm. are describing isn't nest. But there's a third thing called bracha, blessed. God blessed you. Blessed means you did something above and beyond the natural in that moment, which was to your benefit. And not knowing that there is this third middle category, shall we say, right? Midat bracha, which is the Lashon of Chavetz Chaim, means we often we overstretch. By the way, if a miracle actually happened to you, you have to go to that place, say, a brach. Many people who say the word miracle don't do the halachic implications of a ness in lots of different ways. More often than not, mm. again, I can't speak for the Hagavah When you learn the Rambam, when you learn the Chavetz Chaim, we learn the other Sifre Machshav that I've mentioned, you come to realize that there is more than just a binary option of Derchateva and Nest. Instead, at the very least, there's a third category of Bracha, of being blessed. And I think that seems much more appropriate. Mm. And that person should say, I feel so blessed. Akadosh Baruch Hu did me chesed, right? Katonti, I don't think I'm worthy, but nevertheless. And Hashem, and they should... And that's beautiful. But the reason why they often say Ness either is because it really was, I'm not trying to be machlish them, or it could simply be that they just don't have that language of nuance between one or the other. So hmm. 100% miracles is hmm. a massive topic. And if I say a miracle happened to me, then I say, why did it happen to me? I'm not saying there's I'm saying no makar. No makar for that? Of course, there's a source from somebody in the past couple hundred years. But in terms of the Gemara, no. In terms of classic Chazal, no. You mean it's an insight, it's an inspiration. On the contrary, I think there's some more recent Rabbonim who said this, who truly believe that. But I don't necessarily believe it's a hard and fast rule which Chazal, and I say Chazal, the classic teachers or the Medrash, the Gemara, right, stood by or ever uttered. And even if you look at the Mafarsh from the Chumash, similarly, not the case. So people throw away, away these things. Now, do I believe that Kodesh Baruch tests us? 100%. And according to Ramban, tests us to grow. But does that mean that I'm always going to succeed? Or does it mean I can always succeed? Can. The question well, is can. Not always will, but can. So I would posit, and I had a whole thread about this on Facebook last year, where I quoted somebody who said this, and I said, I'm not aware of Mama Chazal and a whole bunch of very learned people for their thoughts to agree that there isn't, meaning it wasn't stamped, and I wasn't trying to create a stir. That doesn't mean that line can't give comfort to people. A person can say that to themselves just as much as a person can say to themselves, Gamzot Toba, great. Say it to yourself, that's fantastic. Whatever works for you. 
But once you start saying it to other people, just like the Gamzula Tova, that makes that person assume that nothing is so hard that they can't overcome. Now, it's true, you can always move the goalposts. So, Chasa Shalom, somebody's diagnosed with cancer. I say, God doesn't give you tests unless you're ability to overcome. Does that mean you're going to get better? No, you could say the test is, as long as you've got this machla, that you're going to maintain a certain sense of a muna. If we're sloppy in its application, it becomes a messy outcome. If we're new in its application, then okay, fine. But I think too often we're sloppy mm. and it can confuse people, making people feel, by the way, when they can't overcome shame, it. Shame, shame. somehow, oh, there we go. Shame. Meaning if it works for you and, and it's bad you, and I'm right. not worthy and I'm not a real Evan Hashem and where was I and how did I fail and all this stuff, which doesn't bring you closer to... I said I was going to give you four examples. So far I've mentioned two. I'm going to give you a third one. One of my early spiritual coaching clients it broke my heart. I promise you, I cried. I cried like crazy after I had this conversation. There was a lady called me whose daughter was sick. And she says, I was taught when I was younger, the kids get sick because of sins of the parents. Oh, my God. And her daughter had leukemia. She oh was calling God. whilst her kid was having treatment. And she said, what have I done wrong? What do I need to do right? Mm. Now, obviously, I'm not, I'm not a god -law. I know what I don't know. I, I don't know plenty. There are Mamre Chazal that say that, by the way. I'm sufficiently learned to know that if I say I'm aware of Mamre Chazal, I'm also aware of those that do. But I also know there are ways of interpreting Mamre Chazal. For that mother to think that when her daughter is sick, I said to her, you're telling me your daughter's in a hospital right now and you're using the limited energy you have to beat yourself up mm. by the things that you've done that you think you've caused this for your daughter? She says, yes. Now, I didn't blame anybody. I don't think anybody who shared that teaching with her when she was young intentionally meant harm. Do you know how much harm was done there? Just think about that. Mm. Now, am I going to explain why her daughter's sick? I, I'm not mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not to be God's mouthpiece. Mm. We're supposed to know our place. We're also supposed to know what we don't know. But I stand up to whoever would have said that to a person, even in their younger years, which they've held on to it, that they carried it to the hospital when their daughter's sick. And they say, how dare you? Because without thinking through what you said, which has some basis, again, but you didn't explain with nuance. You didn't explain its implication. You didn't talk about where or how that could necessarily manifest itself and how it couldn't. There could be parents who blame themselves for the sickness of their kids. Now, of course, in Kassashon, there's illness in the family we should take on. Mitzvahs, we should try and do a cheshbon and nefesh. That's good. But there's a vast difference between trying to bring zchuyot into the life of the person who's sick and feeling a sense of shame and guilt for your past misdeeds especially in that moment. And my heart broke. I cried. And I realized, and that was a moment where I said, you see, people are miseducated about lots of things. People are miseducated about maths and chemistry. Every teacher teaches things well, and sometimes students don't pay enough attention. But when it gets to that point that causes so much pain, I realized we have to speak up. I realized we have to make, we need to be pushing for more thoughtful learning of Machshava, of matters of Imona, so that people like that don't ever feel that same thing again. I'll say just one further example. I had a client who called me just yesterday. And again, we didn't time this Bumikre. I say Bumikre, that itself is there such a thing right, as Bumikre. Right. right. Somebody called me and they live overseas. They don't live in Israel, but they've got a child who's fighting 
here in the IDF in this very, very difficult battle. And they were speaking with somebody. And that somebody said, listen, HaKadosh Baruch Hu decides what's going to happen to us no matter. So your child is no more danger than my child playing ball here in America. And I thought, what are you talking about? There are Torah laws about danger. If there's no such thing as danger, wouldn't need to matter because no matter. It's like saying you don't need to worry about waiting for green to cross the road because you're going to get knocked down whether or not you choose it. You might as well just walk through a battlefield without wearing uh, your bulletproof vest because if there's a bullet with your name on it. Since when do we say that? Allah completely disagrees with that. Machshava completely disagrees with that. And this individual had, again, with a well-meaning but incorrect individual shared advice and that person who was already feeling fragile felt so much worse and again that's because she was doubting her emuna because not only am i in fear not only is my son in battle i'm battling with my with my relationship with hashem that i'm holding on to probably for dear life right now because that's the only thing that's keeping me going right so at a point where this person, in principle, their mun is at the highest, right? That kid is putting their life on the line. Mm. They're really demonstrating yeah. what it means to value things. This conversation led them to may maybe think, maybe I don't believe in Hashem well enough. Maybe I shouldn't be fearful. Who says you shouldn't be fearful? Dilim is filled of psukim of David Amalef saying, I'm fearful. What fear isn't a legitimate thing? Worry isn't legitimate. Milchama isn't something that brings danger. Right, that kind of sentiment it upsets me. I wouldn't say drives me mad because it upsets me because no matter the good intentions, it took somebody from an ignorant understanding of matters to the machshava, made somebody who needed chizuk feel lousy. And with that person, with a woman, with a kid in the hospital, sometimes, like I mentioned, with the gums of the toba, if you say to this lady who is struggling or the hashgacha protis, that doesn't mean they're isn't features of bitochen, ashkoch, protis, of, of nisyonot, or whatever, whatever. But we need to be much more thoughtful. When Easy. to use it and for what, and who to use it to. I want to clarify. I don't think you're saying that every bullet doesn't have a target, that there is sakana, and at the same time, there's a bullet for every target. But don't say that we have the same statistics, just right. because Hashem is involved. Halacha, Hachik's rulings, are replete with discussions about risk, right? There's a famous trouble the Rad Baz about risk. This applies in all questions of medical ethics. We say risk doesn't matter. Like all these conversations would go out the pot. It, correct. So we do recognize that Kosh is the ultimate decider, right? That's why we say ani, ani every morning. Nevertheless, there is a vast difference between a person in a danger zone fighting with bullets all around them and a person playing ball in a local park. Vast difference. And to imply that they're the same and somehow, no matter because both has decided the fate of whom, whomever it is, is to show a tremendous disconnect between, shall we say, emuna in theory and emuna in practice, right? And maybe really Avram Avinu was in that Madrig of seeing the same and being okay being there, that doesn't mean that we can in our day-to-day -day life and say, oh, Hashem told Avram, take Yitzchak for Arcade. And he's like, okay, great, let's go. Hashem said, I believe that this is what I need to do. I need to slaughter my son. There's a big 
gap between what we feel in our heart and what we can actually do. And it's okay if we grapple with it. And I think what you're saying with Amuna, if I can bring it all back home and like wrap a little bow around it and tell me if it's correct, is it's a constant relationship. It's not black and white. There's so many different aspects. There's so many different levels. And it's a personal thing. And it's something that each individual needs to work on themselves if they want to. And there's no one size fits all. And the emuna is the dynamic relationship between you and Hashem. And it's sometimes so simplifies that we take away the beauty of the relationship. The way you just summarize that is stunning. It's beautiful, gorgeous. And I believe it to be true. The Rambam is very clear. Hashgacha pratis depends on the person. And so just like I said to you, in order to give halach guidance, it will depend on the person, the context, their situation, in terms of emunah too. Every relationship is different. Mm. If a couple's therapist gave the same advice to all couples, they'd be out of business in a second. Mm. And too often we give the same advice to people wrestling with different problems. And actually we do harm. We cause pain. And we alienate so many Jews who often feel that Yadis isn't speaking to them because it wasn't. Mm. Because you talk about Asela Harav, because that person didn't spend the time saying, who are you? And have you reflected about your relationship with Kodesh Baruch Hu, or where you are in your journey, and where you are in your own situation? So all that you said is beautiful. We need to have humility to know that we don't know the ways of a Kodesh Baruch Hu. And therefore, when we speak, we should begin by saying, we don't have all the answers. In fact, we have very few. Mm-hmm. We need to be learning and growing and leaning in. Where there is knowledge that we need to accrue when we speak about matters to do with Amun and Machshava, mm. and that's why I say Rambam and others for him, such as that, for that matter. But Gadol, Amunah means, like, to go back where we began, being in that relationship, and Kodesh is with you, and feeling that your needs are being heard, and that you're not alone. Thank you. I have two questions that I want to wrap up with. The first one is a two-part question. The last one is a question that you might not have the answer to off the bat, so... It's okay if you don't want to answer. So the first question is, if you can go back in history from creation till now and you go to the Jewish history book and you have a chance to meet somebody from the Jewish history, who would that be and what question would you ask them? Take your time to think. These are all. I'm going to answer it in a really rabbinic way, which is I don't need to. And this is the beauty that, and this is an idea which Rashi mentions his parish on Perkyovus on those words. Rashi there says Besforim. The Chidah in his parish from Perkyavah says, when you learn to write Yavin Chavrusa with that Mechaber, with the person who wrote, Rav Salabeche describes when you learn Torah, all those people whose ideas you're learning are there with you. The wonderful thing is, I don't need to go back in time. When I learn Torah, I'm having Chavrusa. I don't say for Dvarim, it's with Moshe Rabbeinu. When I'm learning Mishlei, I'm learning with Shlomo Melech. When learning the Rambam, the Rambam's with me. And Baruch Hashem, somebody, if we are able to learn and try and make sense of the words of our teachers, then they are with us. And so we don't look back in the past and try and live in the past. We live in the present by being informed by the wisdom of the past. And that wisdom is being spoken by our many great men and women who have gifted us their wisdom and by learning and making time to reflect, we get to be the beneficiaries of that. 
So I don't need to go back. Oh, Hashem, I have chavrusas with all these people. I have chavrusas with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I have chavrusas with Rav Yosef. I have chavrusas with Benachman of Breslov. And am I worthy? I'm not worthy. But by making time to learn their Torah, they are giving me the privilege of learning from them. And that's a remarkable thing. And our task is like being a conductor of the orchestra, to take all those voices and help them inform the music that guides our life. And some days, as I said at the beginning, some days I wake up and I say, oh, I need to learn this thing, right? Some days I'll say, I really need some chizik from that thing. But we don't need to go back in the past to learn from our great leaders. If they've bequeathed their wisdom, then we're learning from them right now. That's what Chazal say, right? their lips move even within the grave. They're alive when we learn the Torah. They're with us. They're sitting in front of us. And that's what it means to really be invested in Talmud Torah. So there's a lack of clarity. You have a comfort with that. You don't need to go and understand it. There's an idea. Many times in the Gemara, there's debates which end with the word teku. Teku means we can't resolve this question. Uh, Rav Soloveitchik describes teku is a profound lesson for Jewish faith, which is the ability to live with questions. Mm. And in Mona, I said, there's many things that Kodesh Boko does. I don't know. I don't understand. My job is to live with questions. When you get to Shemaim, then I've got a whole bunch of questions. So we should learn with trying to find clarity. We also need to be humble enough to know, maybe I can't. Maybe I'm not ready. Maybe in a few years' time, there's Sfarim, by the way, which once I learned and I didn't understand them, and they went back to them a couple of years later, and I say, now I understand mm. it. Now that I'm a father, now that mm. I'm a parent, mm. I understand what was going on before, and I didn't get it. Nice, nice. So, is essential value for being a Jew, or being, especially in terms of issues relating to Torah and Emunah. And the Zeba Sedel, and that's important to know, to try and solve all questions especially when some are insolvable, yeah. will drive you crazy. Yeah. And by the way, it makes you think that you're greater than you're not. So you live with questions. When you meet an Adam God or when you meet a great person, then you have some questions to ask them. Mm. Now it's privileged to meet Rav Yoshev, Rav Yosef. When you meet great people, then you have questions. Mm -hmm. And you say, I didn't know how to answer this, mm. but maybe you can help me. Mm. And together, perhaps you go on a journey. But it's okay to say, I don't know. It's schwer. It's hard. You mentally write it down and you move on. Beautiful. I like that. And my last question is, is there any halacha, mitzvah, or commandment that you have a hard time philosophically with or actual hard time keeping it? So I'll tell you a mitzvah which some people have a hard time with, and then I'll try and speak a little bit more personally. Some people have a hard time explaining the mitzvah of chalitza, which may mm -hmm. seem like a strange thing, but it's true. Rav Chaim Davidalevi tries to explain it from a Kabbalistic perspective because he says rationally, in our modern times, it's hard to understand. Can you just give an explana and, a quick explanation for people that don't know? Right. So um, there's a Torah law that if a man or woman are married and he dies without them having children, that she was automatically attached to uh, one of his brothers. Now, she can actually marry him they can consummate that marriage and they become married. Or she can say thanks, but no thanks. And there's a certain ceremony. ritual, a certain ceremony, thank you, uh, called chalitza, mm -hmm. which involves a shoe, it involves a certain amount of words. And so when I talk about chalitza, I really meant yibum, but yibum, specifically yeah. chalitza, how that operates and why that works and why that particular ritual 
is hard to understand for a whole variety of reasons. And too often, those who are not familiar with a mystical tradition say, I don't get it, therefore it's stupid. There's a whole world of what we call the Nista, of the mystical tradition, which, though we may not know, certainly exists. And so some mystical teachers try and explore certain mitzvahs in ways which shed light in areas that perhaps those of us who are less involved in the world of Nista may not fully understand. But basically, sometimes an answer to an explanation of mitzvah can be from the rational world. Sometimes you have to dig deeper. In terms of me, no, that doesn't mean that every mitzvah is easy. And it doesn't mean I understand every mitzvah. I think you have okay with not understanding. You're okay. You have the relationship. Yeah. Right. Means that I say, I trust your Kodesh Bochu. Wow, that's a high level of emuna. That's great. I don't know if it's high. I think different people are blessed with different connections and associations. That doesn't mean, by the way, every mitzvah is easy, as I say. Yeah. It means that there's a line I quoted Rabbi Sachs. He said, what if we took God seriously? I take God seriously, I take Torah seriously. Mm. Which means that there are times when I say, I don't understand things, but I take you, God, seriously. I take the Torah seriously. And I humble myself to the wisdom of the Torah. And then my job is to learn how to put that into practice. And that's we learn Chazal, and we see sometimes there are variations of applying a certain particular mitzvah. As a Pasek, as a Halachi decisor, and I help people, sometimes we always think, well, if there's a will, there's a way. That's not always true. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes a certain outcome doesn't work out. And I've had plenty of situations where I've had to give guidance to people where the answer isn't just happily ever after. It's fine or the thing is, the chicken is fine. But sometimes, no, this is a problem. Mm. And you sometimes wonder, where's God in that moment? The answer is God is there wiping away the tears of that individual whose hope may well have been dashed. And recognizing that one as a relationship means that when you're guiding people, you see their total personality, you see things may be difficult for them, and you're empathetic to them and, and sensitive to them. And that often eases various different burdens. You're asking me, like, it's funny, I, I've got five daughters. I haven't had a son have a bris It Would it be hard for me? I have no idea. I, I assume not. Rabbi Solomon, thank you very much for your work. Thank you for your insight. For me, this was very comforting. I feel like I came closer to Hashem just from this conversation. And for me, it was reestablishing this connection that I wanted to be not black and white. And I wanted to be dynamic, to not judge and label because it's comforting. Let's remove the Mm -hmm. labeling. Let's do our own work and let's connect to God in a personal way and be okay with the ups and downs. One quick interpretation of Mama Chazal. We're taught that the prayers, the morning, afternoon, and evening prayers were established by Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And so, and the Torah gives different verses which the Gemara interprets as being demonstrative that each prayed in the morning, the afternoon, and evening. So Yitzchak, we're told, he went out which literally means to meditate in the field in the afternoon, and we therefore learn that Yitzchak davens mincha. The word lasuach literally means either meditate, but also the word sicha means a conversation. And therefore the Gemara tells us and sicha ela tefila. Here the word sicha means tefila, and we mm. learn therefore the Yitzchak went to pray. Rabbi Sachs twists it and says the following: En sicha ela tefila can also come to teach us that every conversation can be itself a prayer. Mm. In fact, prayer is a conversation with God, and every conversation can be a prayer. And I often feel when I'm working with clients 
that we're having an extended prayer with our person expressing the deep hunger and their yearning for connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We may be working through certain practical questions, halakhic questions, questions about Imona, but the whole conversation is itself a prayer of them really, through our discussion, them Beautiful. crying to saying, I want you, I love you, and I'm trying to say to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, help this person connect with you, Beautiful. and we're just discussing how to do that. Prayer can be a conversation, should be, and conversations can be prayers, and I agree with you. This conversation has been very comforting, very uplifting, very inspiring, but in many ways it's also been a prayer that both of us and our different work that we do and shared work that we're doing, we are offering a prayer that things can be different and things should be different because there are many wonderful men and women who wish to serve a Kodesh Baruch Hu, who are looking for connection, who sometimes feel alienated. Mm. And as I've highlighted here, sometimes because they've been miseducated or they've been uh, trained to say things which are simplistic when life is much more complex, they should know that Kachpochu hears their prayers and we should pray that they feel that they're being heard. Amen, amen. Thank you very much. We're going to put a link in the show notes to get in touch with you if anybody wants to meet with you, have a workshop with you, or have a conversation with you. I appreciate your time and your knowledge and your incredible work that you're bringing to the world. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matana. Be well. Thank you for listening to Understand. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please hit that follow button on your favorite podcast app. This way you don't miss an episode and you help us grow. You are part of our growth. We appreciate your support and we hope you choose to listen to us on our next episode. We'd love to hear from our audience. If there's anything you would like us to research, to talk about, please contact us on our website, listeningtounderstand.com. And if there's any insight that you got from this and you want to share with others and you are happy for us to read it out loud on our show, send us your insights, send us your thoughts. We want to listen to understand. Bye till next time.